Hi, my name is Martha. The Old Testament reading is found in Exodus 6, 5 through 8. I've also heard the cry of grief of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians have turned into slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I'll bring you out from the Egyptian forced labor. I'll rescue you from your slavery to them. I'll set you free with great power and with momentous events of justice. I'll take you as my people and I'll be your God. You will know that I, the Lord, am your God who has freed you from Egyptian forced labor. I bring you into the land that I promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'll give it to you as your possession. I am the Lord. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Karen. The New Testament reading is found in 2 Corinthians 7, 1 through 4. My dear friends, since we have these promises, let's cleanse ourselves from anything that contaminates our body or spirit so that we make our holiness complete in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We didn't do anything wrong to anyone. We didn't ruin anyone. We didn't take advantage of anyone. I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty. I've already said that you are in our hearts so that we die and live together with you. I have every confidence in you. I'm terribly proud of you. I'm filled with encouragement. I'm overwhelmed with happiness while in the middle of our problems. The word of the Lord. My name is Wanda. Thank you for standing for the reading of the gospel found in John 17, 21 to 23. I pray that they will be one. Father, as you are in, let me start that over. I pray they will be one, Father, just as you are one in me and I am in you. I pray that they also will be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave to me so that they can be one just as we are one. I'm in them and you're in me so that they will be made perfectly one. Then the world will know that you sent me and that you have loved them as you loved me. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, we come before you as your kids gathered together in your name and your presence. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd speak to us. You would encourage us. You'd challenge us. You would help us. You would continue to form us into the image and likeness of your son, Jesus, that we might live the life of your people in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm the associate pastor here at New Life Downtown. If you're new or newer or watching online, thanks for being here or tuning in with us. 20 years ago, Robert Putnam, who is a professor of public policy at Harvard University, wrote a book called Bowling Alone. When I first saw the title as an introvert, I thought it was like a guide to self-care. This is what I should do. But he actually, in the, in the book, is talking about the collapse of community in the United States. He, throughout the book, sort of takes this very detailed account of the measured and drastic change 
or the measured and drastic decline in civic engagement in the U.S. between the 1950s and the 1990s. And he's looking at sort of a whole scale like uh, look at society, everything from sort of participation in government and other sort of civic kinds of things, to looking at church attendance, to looking at bowling leagues, and seeing all across this continual decline in people's participation in maybe what we've considered cornerstones of the experience of community in the United States. Of course, since that time, since the late 90s, early 2000s, we've had, of course, the proliferation of the internet and smartphones and social media and online dating, and the list goes on and on and on. All of these technological advancements that all in some way have promised to connect us to one another and to connect us to the world, promised to actually deliver the thing that Putnam was saying is now at a loss in our culture. And in many ways, we can look at the last 20 years and say, yeah, you know what? We are more connected to more people in more places than any time in history. There is this massive amount of connectedness. And yet at the same time, when people are looking at Western civilization, the most common thing that they see is what they've called an epidemic of loneliness. In the UK, several years ago, they appointed a minister of loneliness. One of our own former Surgeon Generals said that loneliness in the United States is a health crisis. And it's actually deteriorating not only society, but even ourselves. That there's something going on in the middle of this. One report done by a health insurance company said that loneliness is highest among millennials than any other generation. Those that grew up in this sort of digital connected world are experiencing loneliness at higher levels than anybody else. We have this ache, this yearning, this longing for connection, this longing for community, this longing to know and to be known. And a lot of people will say, you know what, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to go to church and I'm coming, I'm looking for community. I'm looking for connection. I'm, I'm looking for this and some people find it, but a lot don't. Why is that? Why is it that we have this sort of collective ache in our souls for community and yet find it also so difficult, so elusive, so like, oh, it's there and I want it, but I, maybe I can see it, but I can't see it. I'm trying to grab it and I can't grab it. What is happening in the middle of that? We're in the second week in a series uh, that we're starting off the year with called First Things. And it's based off of this passage from Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, instead, desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness. Desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. As we start a new year, this is oftentimes the time of the year that we're making all of our new plans for the year. We're putting them into effect. We have all of our new resolutions or our new goals or our new hopes or this is how many times we're going to go to the gym or this is what we're going to do differently this year. And all of that is actually really good. Uh, last year, I had come off the heels of my 40-year uh, birthday and my visit with my doctor and realized I needed to take seriously last year some, really, some health things and had to spend some time focused on that. This year, my wife and I are talking about 
about some financial focuses that we really feel like we need to work on, and it's such a good practice to kind of have that. But in the midst of those conversations, this passage comes to us, and we hear Jesus saying, okay, in the midst of all of the other plans, in the midst of all of the other priorities that you're setting in place, desire first and foremost. Seek first and foremost God's kingdom and his righteousness and all of this will be added on to you. Prioritize the king and his kingdom and the kingdom way of life. And so for the four weeks in January, we're spending time looking at ways that Christians have practiced this way of life, that Christians have historically sought the God who seeks us. And we know that God is seeking us, that God is coming after us, and that God has provided these sort of ordinary ways that we can seek him. Last week, Pastor Glenn talked about how do we seek God through Scripture? How is it that we read the Bible in a way that helps us to see and to know God and to be formed into his people? And today, I'm going to talk about seeking God together, seeking God in and with and through community, talking about the church and talking about how that fits into this idea of God and his kingdom and seeking him. The first thing that I want to say this morning as we begin is that Christianity is genetically communal. It's at its very essence, at its very core, in the very DNA of our faith, our faith is a communal faith. It is inherently something about being a part of a larger group of people. That we think even all the way through the story of Scripture, the story of Scripture is about a God who seeks a family for himself. Think about this in the Garden of Eden, that God creates Adam. And he, he creates Adam, and he looks, and he doesn't go, oh, I found my person. We're good. Just me and Adam. Just going to hang out. Just the two of us. It's going to be sweet. It's awesome. It doesn't stop there. You know, he then creates Eve. And he doesn't then say, like, oh, I found my small group. <laughs> like, now I've really got it. Like, I don't just have my person. I've got my people. And there's two of them, and it's manageable, and I'm, I'm good to go, you know, from here. No, he looks at them, and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's looking for a family, a big family. And then when, you know, their offspring, all this stuff happens, he calls to Abraham and Sarah. And he calls them, he doesn't say, like, oh, I found my new people. Like, that, those first people didn't work out, so I'm going to try, you know, this small group now. He tells them, no, 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 I, I want to turn you into a family, and I want to take your family, I want to bless all of the families of the earth, so they may all be a part of my family. So they can call everybody. In that passage we read in Exodus, God's rescuing Israel out of Egypt. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then later on, he calls them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The idea is I want this whole kingdom of people to put on display to the world what I'm like and call all nations to myself. I'm looking for a family, looking for a people. And that doesn't change in the New Testament. When we get into the New Testament, Jesus is talking about his followers. He's talking about the church. And he uses all of these metaphors of community. Calls the church a family. Calls the church a body. Calls the church a household. Calls the church all these things. Paul puts it this way at one point in Ephesians 2. He says, so now you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer isolated and alone. 
Rather, you are fellow citizens with God's people, and you belong to God's household. You belong. This is your home. And as God's household, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The whole building is joined together in him, and it grows up into a temple that is dedicated to the Lord. Christ is building you. Listen to this. Christ is building you. He's writing to this church in Ephesus, writing to a local church. Christ is building you, church, into a place where God lives through the Spirit. He's building you into a place where God lives through the Spirit. He doesn't only just want a family, He actually wants to meet us in and through that family. This is exactly why in the New Testament we don't find any solitary Christians. There are no Christians who are not a part of a church. It's foreign to the New Testament idea of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus means to be a part of the family of Jesus. It's one and the same. Like, this means this. It's not like an extra add-on. All of the letters are written to churches or they're written to leaders in churches talking about how is it that we put on the way of Jesus, the life of Jesus in local contexts. They all belong to the church, not just in the theological or global way, but in a very, very local way. They're like, oh wait, these are the people that God's joined together. These are the people that God's joined me with. These are the people that I've been united to because of Jesus. And these are the people that I seek God with. These are the people that help me to seek God. When I can't sing, these are the people that sing for me. When I don't know what to pray, these are the people that help me pray. When I'm not sure what to do about a situation, these are the folks that help me discern. When I don't understand the scripture, these are the people that help. And these are the people that when I have a song in my heart, I sing and it lifts them. And these are the people that I pray for. And these are the people that I help understand the scriptures. And these are the people that I walk with in the course of the day. And these are the people that I seek God with because these are the people with whom God dwells. And I'm seeking God there. See, because God lives in the church through the Spirit, we seek him in and through and with the church. This is part of our DNA. It's genetically communal that we seek God together. And that just sounds amazing, doesn't it? But I've got something else to say. Christianity is genetically communal, and community is genetically difficult. I don't know if you've realized this yet or not. But here's the thing with community. There are humans like people, people who are not me, like other people. You know, they don't look like me and talk like me and think like me and have the same sort of idea of what clean is as I do. They have different ideas about lots of things. And they want to like live their life in different ways that don't match up to all of my ideals and ways of how I think things should be. They're there and they're difficult. They don't seem to want to become like me. <laughs> They're like resistant to the idea. It's so hard. Right? 
was just difficult. And I, but people were like, well, but Jason, it wasn't always that way. What about the early church? Like the early church, like it was beautiful. And there are these passages like this in Acts chapter 4 that we often go to. It's like, oh, but, but there, is, there is the ideal, Jason. And it's right here. Acts chapter 4 says it this way. It says, the community of believers was in one heart and mind. Oh. Right? They were in one heart and mind. And none of them would say, this is mine about any of their possessions. But they held everything in common. And the apostles continued to bear powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord, and an abundance of grace was at work among them all. And there were no needy persons among them, but those who owned properties or houses would sell them. And they'd bring the proceeds of the sale, and they'd place them in the care and under the authority of the apostles, and then it was distributed to anyone who was in need. You're like, this is it, Jason. It happens. Like, ideal community, it's there. We can get there. And I want to say, did you read the next chapter? <laughs> the next chapter, we're introduced to this couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And they're like, we want in on that. We, we want to be a part of this community. It's like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sell our property. And we're going to take all of it and put it under the care and the authority of the apostles, except this part that we want to keep for ourselves to buy ourselves a little house on the sea. But we're going to tell everybody that we're doing the same thing as everybody else. We're going to lie to the church, i.e. then we're going to lie to God. And we're, we're only going to bring a part of it. We're going to say we're bringing all of it. And then what happens? They die. But they fall over dead, which hasn't happened in a gathering here in a while. We're like, did you read on? The very next chapter, what you find is that there's this conflict that arises and people are complaining in church. I've never, I mean, it was profound. <laughs> but what happens is, is that the, the Greek-speaking widows and the Aramaic-speaking widows, there's something that happens that the Aramaic-speaking widows are being taken care of and the Greek-speaking widows are not. And so somebody speaks up and there's this conflict that arises and the leaders say, you know what we need to do? We need to add like systems and structures and staff. <laughs> and they figure out how to do it and they get it taken care of. But there's a need that comes up. See, needs don't, don't actually end. They keep coming up. And so it wasn't like they got to this static place where there was now no longer ever any need. There was another need the next day that they then had to figure out how to meet together. And sometimes they didn't realize it till it was late and people were hurt and offended and they had to work through all of that. So then they find some leaders to take care of that. And then one of those guys, Stephen, in the next chapter, he gets executed. So I'm thinking, I want to go back to the early church. Like, things were clearly, like, just easy all the time for them. There, there is no such thing as a perfect church. There are always internal challenges and external opposition to the people of God. There are always internal challenges and external opposition. On this side of Jesus' return, we're going to experience both. We're going to have challenges and we're going to have opposition. So if you are looking for a perfect church, I am here to disappoint you today. I'm just here to burst bubbles all morning long. It doesn't actually exist. If you're looking for a place where the leaders make all of the decisions that you want them to make in the way and the time that you want to make them, 
where you love every song and every sermon and every staff member and every person you sit next to every Sunday. And they offer every program that you want and the way that you want it, the time that you want it, the day and the time that works best within your schedule. And everyone agrees with all of your theology and politics and thoughts on entertainment. And every relationship is easy and fun and organic. I would like to suggest to you that that is not the church. It's not. If we're honest, our ideas of perfect community are often just projections of ourselves. And if we're not careful, those can devolve really quickly into tribalism and nationalism and racism and a bunch of other really ugly things that have nothing to do with God and his kingdom. They don't. It's not the church. You are never going to find a perfect church. But if you are willing, God will perfect you in a church. If you're willing, God will perfect you in a church. And in other words, he'll show you his love through people you never expected to receive it from. People that don't look like you, don't talk like you, don't think like you. He will begin to show his love to you through them. In addition, he'll show you how to love them. And all of a sudden, you'll start to look more and more and more like Jesus. One of my very first Sundays here, I think it was actually my first Sunday when I was here uh, to interview for the position at New Life downtown. I finished preaching and I was sitting over here and communion was starting to happen. And uh, right up here in this station, there was someone wearing a Peyton Manning jersey. Getting ready to serve communion to the people of God. And about two minutes later, somebody comes down with a Tom Brady jersey. And they loved each other. They, the Peyton manager looked his brother in the eye. And he said, the body of Christ, broken for you. And he said, thanks be to God. If that can happen, this is what happens in church. You stay with Brady fans and Manning fans. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. And you learn to love one another. It can be perfected in the church. This is actually why in our Emotionally Healthy Discipleship courses, there's two of them. One is about developing love for God. That's when we're like, oh yeah, I want to learn to pray and love God and read the scriptures and oh, it sounds so great. The other one is about how to love people because it's hard. It's difficult. It's difficult to own our own stuff and to do our own reflection and say, okay, what is my part to play in this? And how do I own that? And how do I be honest about my preferences? And how do I ask for what I need? And how do I forgive people? And how do I ask for forgiveness? And how do I do this work of community? Because it is work. It's hard. It's difficult. But it's worth it. Perhaps one of the greatest challenges for us in the middle of our particular day and time is that community actually requires constraint. Every church, church in every age, has to sort of deal with the spirit of the age, has to sort of wrestle with the cultural zeitgeist. And if someone were to say, like, what is the spirit of our age? Many have said it's probably radical individualism. That it's this sense that radical individualism is characterized by an unbridled sense of personal freedom. The freedom to seek our own happiness on our own terms without restraint or limitation. Free from all authority, from all tradition, from all hierarchy, uh, from all commitments. Free to just do what we want to do, when we want to do it, 
how we want to do it when we most feel like doing it without anybody else saying anything about it. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do or what to think or where, or where to be or when to be there. We want to keep all of our options open. We don't want any constraints on us. This is probably most like typified by on a Facebook event, there's an interested button. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm interested in that. I'm not going. I'm not going to click that button. I mean, that's like a lot of commitment. I, I mean, I'm interested, and I might show up if I feel like it that day. So we're going to see. I mean, maybe I'll, make, I'll drive there, and then if I don't feel like it, I'm going to turn around. So I'm just going to say I'm interested. I, I'm interested in community, but I'm not going there. I'm interested in it. Sounds fantastic. But, yeah, might require something. And I'm not sure I'm ready for that. The community requires constraint. In fact, following Jesus and participating in his family require constraint. They require commitment and sacrifice and submission. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves. Like just there, take up their cross, follow me. Christianity is cross-shaped. There's resurrection on the other side of that cross, but there is a cross. The very heart of who we are as the people of God, there is a cross. There's sacrifice. There's death. There's saying no. There's self-denial. On the other side of that is profound life, but we get there through a cross. Even community itself, later on in Ephesians, Paul's talking about how they're supposed to do life together under the banner of Jesus' kingship. And he says, submit to each other and of reverence for Christ. Submit. See, community actually requires a commitment of our time, of our energy, of our resources. It requires continuing to show up in the same place at the same time over and over and over and over again with the same people that you're not sure you wish were there that time and continuing to show up. One of my favorite authors, Wendell Berry, puts it this way. He says, a community is the mental and spiritual condition of knowing that a place is shared and that the people who share the place define and limit the possibilities of each other's lives. They limit the possibilities of each other's lives. A community is a place of people whose possibilities are limited because they've made a commitment to one another and said no to other things in order to say yes to this. And that becomes what Pete Scazzaro calls a God-given limit. It's a limit that actually is designed for our own flourishing, for the sake of our own souls. That it's in those limitations that we find that things come alive inside of us. See, we will never have the community we long for without sacrificing the, the freedoms that we cling to. We won't have it. We will not have the community we long for until we're willing to sacrifice the freedoms that we cling to. So what does that look like? How do we really do that? If we really want community, we have to limit ourselves. And here's a couple of just basic thoughts and ideas of how we do that. The first thing I would say is for Christians, the first thing to do is adopt a local church. One of my favorite sort of images of the gospel is, is that through Jesus, we've been adopted into God's family, right? God is now our father. Jesus, we experience his brother. We're connected into God's family. We've been adopted in. 
And yet we get there and we're like, I'm not sure I want these brothers and sisters. Right? I think I'm going to go to the next place and look for another group and then the next place and look for another group. I, I'm still looking for a family that I like. This is the family you've been adopted into. And they're not sure they want you there either. <laughs> but you've been brought together in Jesus. You've been adopted in. So adopt the people that have adopted you. Adopt a local church as your own. I love this story of a meal group in our uh, New Life downtown. There's a family that their tradition as a family was to make waffles together every Sunday morning. And so it was mom and dad and the kids, and they'd get together every uh, Saturday morning and make waffles. And when the, old, when the youngest daughter was getting ready to leave home, she was like, so what are you guys going to do? Like, you're going to be empty nesters now. What's going to happen? They're like, well, I guess we just make waffles for us. And she said, no, you have a family. It's the church. You should invite people over. So they're like, well, I guess we're starting a meal group. And six years later, they're still making waffles on Saturday morning together. Just doing what they already did. They just made this family like their family. They extended the table and said, hey, come on in. This is what we're doing. We're making waffles on Saturday morning. Feel free to come on over and join in. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians. He's writing to the church who's really exiled him. They've pushed him away. And he's, he's saying, like, I have made room in, in my heart for you. Would you please make room in your hearts for us? So the first step in finding community is making room in your life and in your schedule and in your heart for other people, which requires prioritizing the church, prioritizing Sunday mornings and prioritizing some other smaller connection, whether that is in one of our gatherings like first year mom's discipleship or one of our courses like EH or Alpha, whether that's in a team and saying, you know what, families serve one another, so I'm going to join a team, or it's finding a meal group or hosting people in your home as a meal group and saying, I'm going to prioritize Sundays, I'm going to keep showing up, and I'm going to find other ways to be family together as well. Adopt a local church. And the second thing I would say is become what you want the church to become first church that I pastored in, I was a youth pastor at this church, and uh, three years into a church plant, there were 4,000 people gathered on a weekend. It was fun and exciting and all these, like, ah, it was a, it was a ride. And then the senior pastor, the founding pastor of uh, that congregation uh, was caught in a moral failure. And over the course of the next year and a half to two years, we had six unintentional church plants, and we had about 600 adults left at the table. And I remember a moment we were gathered together for a service and a guy who was a, a congregant, wasn't on staff at the time, he's now actually the senior pastor of that church, uh, just as of this past year, uh, he got together and he gave this really simple message. He says, okay, guys, here's the deal. The church, the church is people. And you're a person. So whatever you want the church to be, be that. And it shifted something for us. Like all of a sudden, instead of just feeling lost and confused and what are we going to do and how do we move forward and what has happened to us and where is this going to end, we're just like, all right, we're just going to be what we want the church to be. We're going to become that together. So maybe today you walked in. Maybe it's your first time or second time or third time and you've come and nobody has ever said hi to you. If that's okay, I'm really sorry that has happened. I'm sorry that that's your experience, that you, you came in feeling lonely and then didn't feel like anybody saw you. Yeah. Sorry that that happened. 
And the easiest thing to do would just be to walk out and go to the next place. Try again. And maybe you could join our welcome team. And you could say, you know what? I want to do everything that I can to make sure this doesn't happen to somebody else. And maybe God's given you a heart and a passion to see people that other people don't see or to be sort of on the lookout for somebody that may be sitting alone to go and sit next to them and say, hey, my name is Jason. What's your name? How did you end up here? Tell me your story. And maybe there's a way to actually be what it was that you wished you experienced and to just sort of step into that space. Whatever that happens to be, whatever you're noticing, maybe there's an invitation for Jesus, from Jesus to you to say, hey, what would it look like for you to step into that? Third thing I would say is adopt a local church, try to become what you want that church to be, and then third, try to die there. <laughs> this is a quote from my friend Daniel Grothy as he talks, about, he's our Friday night pastor, as he talks about church. Just try to die there. But think about what would that look like? What would that look like if a group of people were like, you know what, I'm really going to try hard to die here with these people doesn't mean that you're going to. It may be that, you know, if you're in the military, you get moved someplace else, your job takes you somewhere, or maybe the Lord moves you into another church. That stuff happens. Like there are times and transitions and all of those kind of things. But generally what happens for us as people is that we're always looking for reasons to leave rather than striving to stay. We're looking for reasons. Like oh, where's, the, where's my exit out of this? we're looking, we're sort of waiting for the shoe to drop so we can go out the door. And if you're looking for them, you're going to find plenty. You probably found 12 in the sermon. Thank you. Um, They're going to be there. They're going to be everywhere you go. But what would it look like if we just strive to stay? What would that look like? Paul talks about it in that letter. He said, I've already said that you are in our hearts so that we die and live together with you. He's pleading with the Corinthian church. He's like, I want to die with you. They don't want him. And he's like, but my heart's filled with you and I want to die with you. He's trying to die in relationship with them. So what would it look like to just strive to stay, to let your roots go deep into the soil and to wait all of those years to see what kind of fruit comes up? Good fruit takes a really long time. And sometimes it just takes like, okay, I've just said, okay, this is my family. And a year in, you're like, yeah. Five years in, yeah. Ten years in, and all of a sudden you can look back and it's like, oh, wait, look what's happened. The very thing I was looking for, it's, it's happened. But it was slow, and it was hidden, and it wasn't always clear, and it was certainly a lot more difficult than we expected. And lastly, do this as an act of worship. Not as sort of a way to just like meet a need. We have that need. It's there. God placed it inside of us. But what happens sometimes in conversations around community is that we make community a commodity. Something we feel like is, can be bought or sold. Something that we feel like we can just consume. Or something that we start taking, uh, keeping a ledger about well, I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this and I didn't get this and I didn't get this and I didn't get this. Rather than saying, you know what? I've been called to Jesus. And I've been called into Jesus' family. And as an expression of my love and my allegiance to him, I am going to 
be aligned and love a group of people who are called together in his name. And I'm gonna do this as an act of worship. I'm gonna do this because of the great love that he has shed abroad in my heart. And I'm gonna trust him with all the other stuff. I'm gonna trust that he's gonna show up. And this is Jesus' promise. Jesus promised in Matthew, he says it this way, he says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there with them. I'm there. I'm present. The challenge for us is oftentimes we can't see it. Right? We can't see it in this day or maybe this particular Sunday or this month or this year. But if we stay, if we let our roots go deep, if we allow the undercurrent of the Spirit at work in the community to nourish us, we'll sort of look back and say like, oh, I grew and I didn't even know what happened. Like, things happened in me. Things blossomed in me. Fruit came out. Look, I'm a more loving person. I'm a more forgiving person. I look more like Jesus, and I'm not sure how it happened because there were times I just wanted to go. And he says it's a tree that's planted by streams of living water, not a tree that's on the move that flourishes. But we have to do this as an act of worship, as a way of coming to him and saying, okay, Jesus, I need you. You're showing up and appearing to me in and through and with community. And so I'm going to stay. I'm going to adopt this group of people. I'm going to become what it is that I wish the rest of them were. <laughs> I'm going to try to die here. I'm going to do this all for you. I'm going to trust you with the rest of the stuff. I'm going to trust that you're at work, even in times that I can't see you. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we pray this morning the prayer that Jesus prayed. That is, as he was looking ahead at the cross and suffering and death and resurrection, he took a moment and he prayed that we would be one. That we would be one. Just as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one, prayed that we would be one. So Holy Spirit, would you come and would you do that for us? In these moments and over the course of the years together, would you make us one? Would you make us one with Christ? Would you make us one with each other? And would you make us one in ministry to all the world until you come in final victory and we feast at your heavenly banquets? Come, Lord Jesus. Help us. Make us one. In your name. Amen. Amen.